Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. We we have survived another week, and I'm very happy about that. Yeah, we sure have. And, and we're coming off a really fun episode, I think. I, I'm really happy with how the last episode came out. Yeah, that was a that was a nice discussion, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. Yeah, and we got a lot of comments from people who also wanted to talk about the failed RPGs that they wanted to bring back, and so that was that was fun to see so much positive feedback coming in from people. Yeah, it's always good when we have episodes that generate like a lot of comments and a lot of discussion. That's how you know you've had a good episode. And so we are going to circle back on some of those comments this week and talk about the failed RPGs that you want to come back. Also, we've had a fairly news-heavy week in terms of RPGs, so here are some things that we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about Paper Mario, the Origami King, and maybe the backlash that has been coming at it. That is also fairly RPG-related, I think. We're going to talk about Mm -hmm. the PlayStation 5 Unreal Tech demo and how it pertains to the genre that we love. And we're going to talk about Xenoblade Chronicles, which I did a preview of. I seem to be more down on it than Nadia. Uh, I think we're going to come to blows or something. Uh, I don't have the energy to raise my fists, but yes, we'll come to some kind of blows. It can be like that episode of Mad Men where Pete and uh, the British guy, I can't remember his name, uh, do the boxing. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't seen that. It's one of the all-time greatest scenes in TV history, I think. (laughs) <laughs> I'll not have to look it up. Yes, uh, I'll send you the clip after the episode, but okay. I really enjoy it. Uh, being a person who's over 30, I enjoy Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of Mad Men, I think of Parrish because he kind of had that dress uh, dress style going on for a while. It seems like anybody who's under 30 doesn't particularly like Mad Men or connect with it, and people who are over 30 or 40, maybe. Maybe I'm just old at heart. You're an old soul, cat. I guess I am. I, I've been watching Game Center CX on Twitch. Oh, that's fun. I didn't know that was on Twitch. That's really cool. Yeah, somebody's been streaming a translated version of it. And oh, wow. it's reminding me that I'm an old soul because I love watching those old retro games so very, very much. <laughs> and uh, what's the host name? Uh, again, our, um, uh, our, our Arno or Artano, or I can't remember his name, but he just watching him like, just fail so stoically it gives me a headache i feel his headache when i watch those things yeah his name is arino arino that's it. and when i turned it on he was playing tokameki memorial uh which is a playstation one dating sim from konami that had (laughs) really nice anime style art and basically you're you're dating girls (laughs) (laughs) he must have enjoyed himself it was persona without the rpg elements Ah, good times. Yeah, so it was pretty funny uh, watching him woo all the ladies. And then he followed it up with a very bad uh, jump anniversary RPG uh, with Dragon Ball and uh, Saint Seiya and all of those classic 80s anime. That sounds like it could be a really good RPG, but if they screwed it up, I'm not surprised. But this was an episode from like 2005, so they had an advertisement for the Nintendo Revolution coming soon. Please look forward to it. <laughs> Please look forward to it. It's going to be a revolution. I gotta say, the Nintendo Revolution looked dang cool in 2006. Very, very high tech. Yeah, the day that they revealed the controller, I was very, very drunk. And I was like, because I had just gone out with my brother that day and we like had a pitcher of beer each. 
And uh, I just kind of came home and saw that control. I'm like, uh, what? What? I think I'll have to just kind of sleep and, and try this again tomorrow. Remember when they nicknamed, when they revealed the name was the Wii and everybody immediately started <laughs> making really bad jokes? <laughs> yeah, we're like, oh, I'm going to play with my Wii. <laughs> and then they didn't make it better with like Wii U. Yeah. Uh, well, people thought it was a joke. They couldn't believe that yeah. it was going to be Wii, W-I-I, but it ended up being the, the perfect name. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it entered the, the mainstream vernacular, so what more can you ask for? No, oh, absolutely. Uh, it just goes to show that you should never play to gamers, because gamers are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Nintendo plays to itself. Yes. All right. Axe of the Blogout is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you enjoy the show, can I invite you to leave a review over on iTunes? We always appreciate you seeing the feedback from the fans and hearing from all of you. If you want to reach me, if you want to send an email with feedback from the latest episode, drop a comment on our show notes or send me a DM on Twitter at the underscore Kappa. My DMs are open. God help me. And, <laughs> and send me Mine an too. email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. We also have a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday. And Nadia, what was our newsletter about this week? Well, I finally finished Final Fantasy VII Remake. And uh, I'm not going to spoil anything about the ending, but but I will say, and I brought this up in the newsletter, is given Crisis Core's role in this remake, which is quite huge, we should really have, uh, just to reiterate a point I've made many times, but it still stands, we should really have Crisis Core. It should be out there, easy to play, even if it's not a remaster or a remake or anything like that. Just put it on something, please, so we can... Because the story is very, very tied into remake, and, and that's a big thing. And there's no currently, there's just no easy way to experience the game, and that's kind of ridiculous. I think Crisis Core is fine the way it is, and we don't need a remake. But I wouldn't mind a port to the Nintendo Switch or something. Yeah, like give me even if you just do like what you do with what Square has done with Final Fantasy VII and, and Eight and all that, and just kind of maybe polished up the graphics a bit, gave us some. Uh, some you know things to make the game a bit easier to play in those in these, in these modern times. That's perfectly fine. Just put it on the Switch, please. But the problem is, if you put it on the Nintendo Switch, Final Fantasy VII Remake is not on the Switch. So you're asking people that who is only have a PS4 potentially, and I'm sure there are people who are like that, who to be like, well, you finished Final Fantasy VII Remake, but if you want more context, go to this other platform. Yeah, put it on the PS4. I'm not picky. <laughs> <laughs> My days of console warring are long behind me. I, I guess. Uh, Crisis Core is a very good game, and I wouldn't mind a, a added level of uh, availability for this particular game. Exactly. But uh, That's pretty much my complaint. But on the other hand, I don't know, just watch YouTube. <laughs> you can watch all, all of this stuff right there. You don't necessarily have to play the original game. Yeah, but I, I want to I want to play the original again. It was a good game, and yeah, actually, that game has no business having uh, cutscenes as good as they are. Uh, it's really strange how that worked out. Do you? Uh, here's an interesting thing. Do you think that? Do you think that people who watch Crisis Core or? <laughs> do you think that people who play Final Fantasy VII Remake without having ever played the original game or Crisis Core are going to be deeply confused? Uh, well, actually, my husband watched me play the whole game, and that's one reason I was a little bit slow, because we were just kind of, quote-unquote, playing together. And he was, he did ask me a lot of questions about, like, who this character is and who's that character, but he followed along quite well until, I guess, the ending, which just, of course, went completely off the rails and 
nobody understood that, let alone people who haven't played the game before. So yeah, he really, really got into the story, and that's why he wanted me to to play it whenever he was in the room. So he he followed along perfectly well until the end. Okay, interesting. I think that if I had never played Final Fantasy VII, I think I would have looked at the end and understood that they were obviously teasing something and that I would have more answers in the sequel. Yeah, like he did get that much. But um, the only really enigmatic part of that game is Sephiroth. He just, I think everyone else is quite straightforward and Sephiroth just speaks in riddles because he's Sephiroth and he's cool and he has to. But like, you know, when he... When he talks to to Cloud in the ending, he says some very, very cryptic things, even though I think the whole ending is just a really fancy way of Squaresoft saying, screw you, we're doing what we want with the story now, ha ha ha, which is, I really, really admire the chutzpah, that's that's pretty, pretty huge, and I'm, I am definitely intrigued to see where this goes next. I mean, I don't know if you saw my tweet where I said, like, I finished Final Fantasy VII Remake and my thoughts were just the image of Morty from Rick and Morty saying, you son of a bitch, I'm in. When you, you came to me on Slack and you were like, what the hell, cat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, and you're right, but you knew what the ending was going to be because I did kind of spoil it for myself, but it's still, I still had moments where I saw certain sequences and said, no, that can't be possible. That's not allowed. You can't do that. And they did it. No, so, that's not true. No. That's impossible. <laughs> it was. It is totally true. It is all true. Squaresoft is is screwing with us and they're having a lot of fun doing it i mean i would troll these fans who have been waiting for a long time for a final fantasy 7 remake uh just it's too yeah. it's right there you can just do it why, why? yeah exactly you're they're so malleable you can do whatever you want and square's like oh boy we are going to do whatever we want i think that we're in an era that is so geared toward fan service and nostalgia for nostalgia's sake i mean look just look at what star wars does with The Force yeah. Awakens, especially J.J. Abrams, where it's not concerned with actually building on the existing material in any meaningful way. It's just a recursive loop in which they constantly go back to the original material and don't add anything to it. So in that respect, yeah. I'm kind of happy in a way that Square Enix isn't just going down the pure fan service route. Yeah, so am I. Um, it's interesting that you bring up Star Wars because I'm thinking of the way The Last Jedi just upended everything, and that made fans so, so mad. But I find Square fans are taking this, the remake's uh, um, ending, even though they're a little bit baffled, they're taking it quite well. I thought Imran Khan uh, did a really good job of articulating what Last Jedi was saying and why Rise of Skywalker was such an utter failure, which was that The Last Jedi was heavily suggesting that in the end, the defeat, the final defeat of the Empire and the Dark Side wasn't going to come from a special family. It was going to come from the people. And Rey was yeah. meant to embody that. And Rise of Skywalker yeah. was like, I don't understand. It was actually a special family. <laughs> Back to the Skywalker dynasty, y'all. Yeah, it, it was terrible. I liked Last Jedi's message a whole heck of a lot more. It was a great way of building on the original messages of the original trilogy i only hope that yeah, really final like fantasy it. 7 remake isn't effing with us for the sake of effing with us and actually have something meaningful to add to the original game that's what i'm wondering i'm thinking okay the story i found i did not have a problem following it whatsoever even though a lot of it was new like it seemed very straightforward very most of the time down to earth you know barring some crazy ass dragon ball z style fights it was mostly easy to follow, and the only time I kind of got 
that it, the only time it got like Kingdom Hearts syndrome was right at the end. And I feel like the ending, once all the crazy stuff was over with, put us back on that foundation where Cloud and friends are looking ahead and saying, okay, we have work to do. Uh, very much like the uh, original ending, which I always liked very much. Like they were just, okay, well, Sephiroth is out there. I have to find him. And that was square. That was um, Cloud's resolve in the in the new one as well. So if they keep that tone, that down-to-earth tone, and keep the screwiness to a minimum, uh, yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. I, there's got to be a little bit of screwiness because we're talking about Square Enix here, but and they obviously set a precedent. I, but uh, yeah, I think I'm willing to be more forgiving of Final Fantasy VII Remake's approach to the storytelling because they did such a great job of realizing the characters and the cast, and yeah, also they executed on the battle system concept so well, and it's quite a beautiful game in many respects. I mean, I have. Plenty of objections to the structure of the game and everything, but I like this cast so much that I'm kind of willing to just roll with it so that I can spend more time with Aerith and Tifa and Cloud and Barrett. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to most, just going back to the characters. and That's what it comes down to. If the characters are still the characters, I'm that's what I'm on board with. Like, if the narrative gets a little bit screwy, whatever, but I'm good with the, the gang and I want them to kind of stay the way they are, barring, you know, their personal growth. Okay, Nadia, let's continue onward and talk about some of the news that happened this week in RPGs. First things first, on Thursday, Nintendo announced Paper Mario, the Origami King, in a very brief teaser. Uh, We are in such a weird, strange time owing to the pandemic, so I'm sure that Nintendo had different plans for this game. By all accounts, Paper Mario is done and has been done for some time now. And it's just a matter of putting it out. It's already on the eShop. And it'll be out in a couple months, I believe. Uh, but I think it's July. Yeah, but it proved to be kind of controversial. A little bit. Well, actually a lot bit, depending on, on what pockets of the internet you hang out in. Paper Mario, you would think that like such a cute little lighthearted RPG series would not have tons of drama around it. But yes, of course it does. And that is because last week, I think it was, or the GameCube, sorry, the GameCube, console quest we talked about the thousand year door in depth and what a special rpg it is and it is it's one of my favorites and it's by far one of the most one of the best uh, rpgs on the nintendo gamecube but it set a precedent that people want uh few like uh, subsequent paper mario games to meet up with and things kind of went you know it, i'm not going to say they went downhill but things really drifted away from thousand year door like we had super paper mario on the wii which was an action game, and to be honest, I was not a, I'm not a big fan of Super Paper Mario. It had, um, I think a lot of people forget that it had a lot of dialogue that you couldn't skip, and that drove me crazy. And that might actually be the reason why, for the next game, Shigeru Miyamoto said, hey, um, for Paper Mario Sticker Star, let, let's kind of go back on the story. Let's ease that off a bit. And that really made a lot of people mad, and to this day, when people call for Miyamoto's retirement, that's one of the points they bring up. Hey, he ruined Paper Mario's story. Let's let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. He's old. He doesn't know. He's not in touch anymore. He doesn't know what's going on. And yeah, I was disappointed that that Sticker Star didn't have a story because Thousand Year Door had a great story and great characters. Um, but then uh, what was the next one? Color Splash came out for the Wii U, and unfortunately, it's a Wii U game. Nobody played it. Uh, by most accounts, it was much better. A lot of the personality was back, but. 
people didn't like the battle system. They didn't like the fact that a lot of the battles don't mean anything. Like you don't get rewards from them, which is obviously a bit of a letdown. I didn't play too much of Color Splash myself, but I did watch my husband play it. So I can't remember exactly how that works. Um, but the thing people point to most is how Thousand Year Door had NPCs that were very like dressed up. Like you'd see like, you know, say a glamorous woman toad dressed up in a dress or like uh, another toad like dressed up as like whatever, just doing different jobs. And people point to the newer Paper Mario games and say, look at these toads. They have no variety. They're all just, you know, differently colored toads. They don't have costumes. They don't have anything. And it's just the things like that people really pick up on for for when criticizing Paper Mario. And they've decided, some of these people have decided that through this two-minute trailer that we got the other day, we have the same syndrome going on where the toads are all the same and the writing's not good and is not a real RPG and it's not the Thousand-Year Door. And that's what it comes down to. It's not the Thousand-Year Door, therefore it's bad. It seems to me that Luigi's Mansion 3 has become the Paper Mario replacement in that it is very meta. It has a lot of cheeky asides to Nintendo history. It has a great sense of fun. And it just seems to be on a higher level from an aesthetic standpoint and a design standpoint than the Paper Mario series at this point. I think um, I, I adore Luigi's Mansion 3. I thought that was one of my favorite games uh, last year. And I, that surprised me because I like Luigi's Mansion, but I'm not like a huge, huge fan. But I really, really like 3 because, yes, as you say, it was very meta. It was very funny. A lot of fun to play. But I still get something different out of the Paper Mario games that I appreciate uh, it, it is a sense of humor, but it's a little bit of a different sense of humor. Uh, the aesthetic is very interesting because I think Origami King uh, looks really, really cool. Like, that's another thing some people don't like is the fact that the Origami King and other, like, later Paper Mario games really double down on the fact that, hey, Mario's in this paper world and you can do crazy things like pull down the scenery and fold it. Whereas uh, in the really old Paper Mario games, especially the first one, the paper thing was just an aesthetic. There was no, like, hey, Mario's in a paper universe now. And it just really, really annoys people that that Mario plays with paper in, in, in these newer Paper Mario games. And that's a little bit strange to me. Uh, what is it exactly that you get out of Paper Mario that you don't get out of Luigi's Mansion? Well, Luigi's Mansion is a totally different gameplay system. Like, I don't know. They, I guess they have a similar sense of humor, in my opinion. Yeah, but... The more, the more sense of humor I have where Nintendo is a little bit meta and a little bit freer with Mario characters and like and not so stoic with them because, of course, mainline Mario games don't really have that, you know, that sense of fun and sense of humor in their writing as much. Um, if I can get more of that, I'm always good with that, especially with um, the, the thing about the Paper Mario games, especially Thousand Year Door, and this is another thing people are really, really down on. In the Paper Mario games, you get villains who are your friends and who fight with you and just kind of give you this whole perspective of the Mario universe that you do not get anywhere else. Like, there aren't really any other Mario games where you can become, you know, friends with a, a Toad who's a know-it-all or, a, a you know, a shy Koopa who's looking for his father. So that's what the Paper Mario games for a lot of people, that's what it, it gives them, that, that sense of fun with the other side of the universe. Yeah, I suppose. I think that, <laughs> I guess I've never been that much of a Paper Mario fan, and I felt like the sharp writing was about all it really had to offer. And so I kind of felt like Luigi's Mansion usurped the one thing that Paper Mario did really, really well. Yes, I, I know it always also had a fun visual aesthetic and everything, but it never like 
blew me away to the point where I was like, I have to play this game, if you know what I mean. Have you, which games have you played in the, in the Paper Mario Oh, series? I played, played Thousand Year Door. I played Thousand Year Door, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and I played the ones, okay, so it's not strictly speaking the Paper Mario games, but I played the ones on the 3DS, like Bowser's Inside Story. That's kind of different. That's a different, totally different battle system and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but you kind of lump them in together, right? Because they're ostensibly from the same lineage. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, I guess Paper Jam, you know, is a good example of that, but... Uh... I don't know. I, I find Paper Mario has a... Well, sorry. I find Mario and Luigi has a much more complicated battle system than Paper Mario. It is much more based on the original Mario RPG from the SNES. Right. So Paper Mario is quite simple. <laughs> it, it is definitely simple. Um, but it's still fun. Like, you still have the, the action element of, uh, you know, pressing A at the right time or jumping on the enemy at the right time, throwing fireballs, et cetera, et cetera. Is it just... What is it about this game that people want? So they want more thousand-year doors. What I'm getting. That's basically it. They want the thousand-year door. They want, you know, evidence that we're going to get those colorful characters back. And I, I do understand the criticism of. Uh, it looks like, for example, in in Paper Mario, uh, the Origami King, that Mario is hanging out with a a babam, and that babam seems to be from the trailer seems to be kind of chill and relaxed and and funny. But he doesn't have any defining physical characteristics beyond the fact that he is a babam and that is his name. Whereas in Super Mario, uh, sorry, in Paper Mario: A Thousand Year Door, it would be totally different. Like there are babams there, and they have like you know, you might find a pirate babam who has a mustache, or like you know, a, a thief babam. Just the babams were all dressed up in different ways and usually had different names. And people want to see that kind of characterization back, and I, I don't blame them for that, but. It doesn't detract that much from the the newer uh, Paper Mario games that I feel like I have to go on a tear on the internet. I I suppose, yeah. Uh, I also see a lot of people who are talking about wanting more of the RPG elements back, especially XP. They want confirmation that there's XP, that there's kind of a more nuanced battle system. That's Maybe that's why I brought up the, the GBA, Bowser's Inside Story, and, and whatnot, because... It seems like people want those games, but with the Paper Mario aesthetic. Yeah, um, the Mario and Luigi games are definitely much more traditional RPGs, where you get the experience and the skill points and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas um, Color Splash and Sticker Star had a sticker-based battle system that people hated, which I understand. Like people don't like fighting with things that can ex- that you can run out of. Like, for example, to strike an enemy with a hammer, you had to have a hammer sticker and people were paranoid, well, okay, what if I run out? And, you know, some people don't like having that kind of thing in the back of their head when they're trying to play. Color Splash was also more action-oriented. Like, I don't think you got rewards for beating enemies, and that ticked some people off. So, yes, people basically want to come back to a system where you do get, like, those de- those de- definitive uh, prizes for defeating enemies, like experience or that just evidence that Mario grows, period. And, of course, as usual, people got very toxic very quickly about their reaction to Paper Mario, which is unfortunate. It is. Um, I honestly like the look of the story in this one. Like, the way it opens with, like, Peach is folded as an origami figure, and she's kind of creepy looking. And she asks Mario, like, will you fold yourself and become reborn like me? And it's like, and her, like, text box is shaking, and it's just, like, I think Eric likened it to, like, a Junji Ito thing. So will you be playing... Of course you're going to be playing Paper Mario. You're probably going to be reviewing it. 
Yeah, I'd, I'll definitely be on board for that. I love Paper Mario. Yeah, I just don't have much interest in playing this one. Yeah, that's fine. I'll take over. <laughs> so That's why there's two of us. I, I think what people just really want is just port Paper Mario Thousand Year Door over to the Nintendo Switch, and then everybody can be happy. Yeah, then everyone will be happy. Like That much I agree with, that's for sure. Uh, by the way, if uh, you were wondering if you should be taking a shot for Switch port begging, here you go. <laughs> there's your weekly shot there might be more so hold on to that though we already did it with crisis cores so i mean take another oh, shot oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay continuing onward also on thursday was a demo for ghost of tsushima which uh once again in i'm curious what you think nadia because i wasn't that impressed it looked nice it, it does look very very nice um it, it's the kind of game where I'm not like, oh my god, I have to get that right now. I got to get my hands on that right now. But when it comes out, and if people are talking about it and saying this is a really nice open world game that has some cool sword play and you can pet a fox, and they say you should play it, I'll, I'll be on board. I'll say, oh yeah, sure, I'll play it. Um, I like open world games, and like I said on Slack, I it's funny. I don't really care about samurai movies, but I like playing samurai games. So I'm down for some sword play. I'm down for some horse riding. I'm down for some open world fox petting action sure why not i mentioned ghost of tsushima on this podcast because i think it's emblematic of this convergence of open world games which have increasingly become a melange of assassin's creed and horizon zero dawn mm -hmm. and witcher 3 <laughs> yeah definitely um i think you were saying that on slack as well just up oh, there's those rpg elements and i forget what it was for specifically but you said it well, for one thing, the gear will confer different abilities, so... That's right, yes. And not only that, but it's all fully customizable. And so they really want to convey... Increasingly, RPG elements are there to convey the illusion of depth, even if the game itself mm -hmm. isn't particularly deep. And um, I don't know how deep this game is going to be, but that might be okay. I might be okay with just being on an overworld and, and slicing up bad ninjas as a good ninja. Everybody was comparing it to Assassin's Creed, but when I looked at that combat system right. and the way people moved, it reminded me very much of Witcher 3. And Yeah, I think Mike was doing the comparisons. Yeah, just in the way that Geralt... Or, so, in Geralt and the samurai from this game, uh, it uses a lot of slowdown as you're slicing through enemies. Mm. Uh, it's a counter-parry-based kind of system, etc. The only thing that's really missing are... Um, the only thing that's really missing is magic. <laughs> we need some samurai magic. And there probably is some samurai magic. Who knows? Yeah, I, I came in a little bit late to the, the stream, so I can't remember what the plot is for this one. Oh, it's based on the real-life invasion by the Mongols of Japan. Right. But I, I, I guess I'll be playing Ghost of Tsushima because it'll be coming out in the summer, and it'll be kind of like, well, what else am I going to play? But it kind of received a muted reaction, I feel. A lot of people were kind of dwelling on the graphics and also the fact that it looked a little yeah. samey compared to other open-world uh, action games slash RPG things. There are some pretty cool filters that you put on, though. That black-and-white filter, I would never play a whole game in it, but it, just the fact that it's there is going to make for some really nice pictures. And I think that's a big, big thing. Is photo mode, of course, is going to be huge. Yeah, but everybody was pointing out that it's not saturated properly, and so it looks wrong compared to Kurosawa films. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. But we are, yeah, I had heard complaints about the graphics. I think they look fine, but I am i don't have a really good eye for that kind of thing. Um, 
but I did see comments about how you can really tell we're at the we're really at the end of the generation and, and PlayStation 4 is, is straining to keep up. Yeah, but it looks worse than even some other different PlayStation 4 games, I sort of feel. Like, I don't think it looks as good as Witcher 3. I think between this and the uh, Runreal 5 demo we'll be talking about in a minute and, say, a preview of a game like... Uh, Paper Mario, Origami, King, which all came together very, very close together, you really get a sense for how the future of game graphics to me is going to be how you can stylize things to really pop and stand out. Like, I, I, will not, I won't forget what Paper Mario, Origami, King looks like. It's, it's embedded in my head forever. It looked great. Uh, same with, say, like, Persona 5, a game like that really stands out in your head, whereas Ghost of Tsushima, like, it looks fine. I think it looks just fine, but you're right in that it does kind of have that samey look that makes me confuse it with lots of other games in that genre. Yeah, it's pretty enough, I guess. Um, so a lot of people... It does have it does have cherry petals. It, it did, yes. I, I like their photo mode, but... <laughs> yes. I don't know. It, it, it might end up being really good, or it might invite unfavorable comparisons to other open world games especially Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which is already shaping up to look very, very good. Certainly Valhalla yeah. looks better because it's just by virtue of being on Xbox Series X and next-gen consoles. So, Exactly, yeah. We assume. We haven't really seen gameplay for it. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Those, uh, those cinemas look good. Hey, hey. All right. Final piece of news uh, that you already mentioned, the Unreal Engine 5 demo that we saw uh, running on PlayStation 5. Everybody was ooing and aahing on it. Do you have any thoughts on what this can mean for RPGs, Nadia? Um, it is a good question because as Mike wrote on the site, yes, that demo looked really, really nice, but how it's implemented in games is a totally different story. Uh, I, I am interested to see what can be done. Uh, to me, like it looked fantastic, no, no questions there, but going back to that whole thing about stylization, uh, it just kind of looked like an Uncharted game to me, like a fancier one, a nicer one, which is fine. There's nothing against that, but what will developers do to kind of help their games stand out with all that new power? I'm I'm curious about that. What I'm really curious about is which developer is going to set the standard in terms of graphics uh, for next gen. Right. So, it's for example, I, it sure seems like Bethesda is finally moving on from its very creaky engine that it was using for Fallout 4 and Fallout 76. <laughs> I can't believe they're still using that, that poor little engine, but what have they moved on to? Well... We could see something completely new for its game set in space, uh, Starfield. Uh, mm. I can't remember if that's the exact name. I think it was Starfield. Yeah. Uh, we could end up having a graphic showcase from that. Uh, it's also not That'd out of cool. the realm of possibility that BioWare cranks out something really nice looking with Dragon Age 4. But right, I, I think the early standard setter is going to be uh, Cyberpunk which is already just too much for current-gen consoles and is very much a next-gen game. So early on, Cyberpunk is going to be the game that kind of defines the look of RPGs. The reason that I mentioned the Unreal Engine 5 demo is that I think it just reflects that a lot of RPGs, AAA RPGs particularly, that come from, uh, that come from different studios... Uh, Western studios in particular are going to all kind of look the same and are going to be shooting for yeah. that Witcher look. And so we're going to see a lot of environments, sort of like what we saw with the Unreal 5 demo, which, I mean, in fairness, those were really pretty environments. We're basically hitting photorealism at this point. 
oh, we are totally getting photorealism. Like that last little bit, they couldn't really nail the light. That's totally, that's just fine now. That's great. Yeah, ray tracing is going to be really cool for the next gen. But then again, like on the other hand, while really nice graphics can be great for RPGs, they aren't everything. I think RPGs are built less on the visual splendor and set pieces and more on individual storytelling and everything. Maybe. No, absolutely. Maybe the best thing that this engine is going to be able to do is to have even more convincing character models so that we're less in the uncanny valley and therefore we're able to connect with them more the one thing i think i'd really like to see is with long-haired characters let's have less clipping through shoulders please yeah for sure (laughs) and really nice cape physics yes let's have let's have no clipping in capes and 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 hair that's uh that's got to go please I think that with more memory and greater graphics capability, we might see more ambitious, even more ambitious open world RPGs. Uh, there's, yeah. there's been a lot of talk about what the PS5's solid straight drive could mean for the genre. And a game like for, for Pretend Witcher 4 could benefit hugely from that. Yeah, um, thinking back to Final Fantasy VII Remake, uh, although you didn't really notice them because they were disguised, there were a lot of low times in that game, like when like clouds is crawling through something or whatever. They could probably eliminate a lot of that with uh, the next part if they put it on the PlayStation Five. Yeah, I think so. So, looking ahead to Unreal Engine Five, the funny thing is when Next Gen rolls around, I think we're gonna still be getting a lot of games. Like, let's pretend Persona Six comes out um, on the PS Five. I mean, it'll probably be very nice looking, but do it's certainly not going to look anything like the demo that we just saw. No, that would be really... It would be weird to play a Persona game that looks like that. It'll look pretty, though. Oh, yeah, it'll look great. Persona games usually do. <laughs> I wonder if Persona 5 Royal is going to come out on PS5. That's a good question. Um, I wonder how that would happen, because the game was like made for the, for the PlayStation 3 to begin with. As we were kind of discussing with the Xbox Series X showcase, I think a lot of games are going to look like Scarlet Nexus. Definitely have that kind of like super funky cell shading splendor, for lack of a better we'll word. We'll see a lot of games that look kind of low budget that could probably run on the PS3 or early PS4, <laughs> but are nevertheless released on PS5. Yeah, yeah, we definitely will. But people will find their groove, and then you never know what you're going to be surprised with. I mean, look at one of the most popular RPGs of all time, Undertale. It was done on like like not really rpg maker but i think game maker when it has some of the most simple sprites in the industry and it, it just hit really hard how many developers are going to shoot for the lowest common denominator so that they can put it on switch too oh see that's the thing that's definitely a big thing because if unreal engine 5 meets the switch the switch is going to blow up like there's going to be nothing left of it just atoms so you're right. People will be kind of developing with the Switch in mind because, of course, with the quarantine in particular, the Switch is just – it's off the shelves. Like, you can't even get it anymore. And, and that's – how old is this system now? Like, two or three years? Like, it's not a new system. But I don't know what Nintendo has planned next for it. And um, I just feel like it's going to be the way it is for some time longer. And that's going to cause – you're right. A lot of developers to say, well, we want to port this to the Switch. So what if we just kind of dial this back a bit? True or false, Nintendo needs to release Switch 2 in 2021 to be able to keep up with PS5 and Xbox Series X. Uh, Undetermined. I've been thinking about that for a while, and I just can't come up with an answer. I say false. I think that graphics are less important than ever. The Switch can live and die by its IPs. It has plenty of games already, 
and we've just reached the point of diminishing returns in terms of graphics. A game like Breath of the Wild isn't state-of-the-art, but it still looks really darn good, and I'm sure Breath of the Wild 2 will look even better. Yeah, like just Animal Crossing has simple graphics, but they're so nice. Just the textures, the wind blowing through the trees, stuff like that. It all depends on how you use it, not exactly like the power involved. There's no doubt that Animal Crossing is the most impactful game of 2020 so far and will mm-hmm. and has a pretty good shot of being the most impactful game of the year, period. It, it's certainly my game of the year, and it's not close right now. We'll see how Cyberpunk or Assassin's Creed end up shaking out. But, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that game is simple as simple can be. I mean, it could run on a PS3, no problem. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. But it's you're not looking at the game and saying, "You how how last gen is this?" No, it's you're looking at it and saying, "Wow, this is such a peaceful, calming scene. I really, I really love this. I'm going to take a picture." Yeah, as long as you hit a certain aesthetic, at this point, it I don't know that it really matters. It features matter more. Really good design matters more. A great design sensibility. It's funny, like we're going back to Ghost of Tsushima. It is objectively a beautiful game. But it also leaves me feeling a little cold because I feel like I've seen so much like it. And that's probably why I was asking you, well, what's the what's the story for this game again? Because, yes, I have seen a lot of games like it. So I got kind of mixed up, confused. Oh, is this the one where the guy is searching for this or searching for that? Uh, but you look at most Nintendo games, you know instantly what they are and what they're about. Okay, that is all of our thoughts on the news that was announced this week. If you have additional thoughts on Paper Mario or the PlayStation 5 tech demo, or on Ghost of Tsushima, drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a DM. Meanwhile, uh, let's talk a little bit about Xenoblade Chronicles, Nadia. Okay, Nadia, we are about two weeks away from the release of Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition for Nintendo Switch. I have it on my Switch already. I've been playing it. I had some thoughts in a preview that I put up over on US Gamer in which I talked about, well, mostly the graphics and how it's been improved. My overall thoughts on Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition is that it is a Wii game and ultimately there's only so much you can do to really spruce it up. They couldn't do a straight port. They had to make it look at least a little nicer when they were in HD. Otherwise, it would have kind of looked like hot garbage, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah. Their faces are just... Their, their faces are kind of hideous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just smashed up textures. But they did a pretty nice job of cell shading the character art and everything and upgrading it. But you can really see the game's Wii roots in the environments in particular. And if you're playing on handheld... It looks a little bit like a fine layer of Vaseline that's been smeared over everything. And one of my main takeaways was that Xenoblade Chronicles 2 actually looks better. Yeah, um, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is actually quite a good looking game. Like I said, I think on the previous episode, I have started a new game. I'm not exactly far into it. I'm just fiddling around with it so I can compare when uh, Definitive Edition comes out. And yeah, um, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was troubled at launch, but they really... Uh, got a handle on the engine and added a lot of improvements. And the the uh, preview that they did, the DLC, is also like runs very well and looks very good. So, uh, as you said, I guess they can only do so much with a Wii game, even though they have a, a better grasp on the engine now and what what is required for Switch development. Uh, because those 
complaints that you made in your preview mirror a lot of the same things Katie is saying because she's playing the game as well. And she is enjoying it from what she has told me. But while the character models supposedly look, you know, pretty good, pretty almost, you know, this gen, the character, sorry, the, the backgrounds, the fields you travel on look kind of eh. It looks okay on a TV, but you can definitely see how rough the NPCs look, for example. The, the geometry of the outdoor environments mm-hmm. have that kind of jaggy uh, PS2 era look to them. Uh, the textures aren't particularly sophisticated, even on the television. Um, mostly, you just want to focus on the characters and the enemies. To be clear, this isn't a deal breaker. I think that, as I already kind of discussed in my preview... This is kind of taken as a given, as it were, because Xenoblade Chronicles is a game from the Wii. It did not come out on the PS3 like, say, Nino Kuni did. So you're just working from a, a tougher foundation, I feel. But it's yeah. just something that you should know, that if you're expecting a wholesale remake, maybe temper your expectations a little bit. Yeah, and that I can understand, especially since uh, the original Zeta Blade was not HD. It had to they had to basically upscale it for HD. So there's that on top of everything else. The thing that I find kind of interesting is that, and I was kind of discussing this in my preview, was that ever since the Xenoblade Chronicles came out, first there was a longing for an actual localized release in America, and then there was a localized, and then there was a longing for a better version of Xenoblade Chronicles, the one that was available on the Wii. So people, first people were playing it in HD on the Dolphin emulator, and then everybody was excited about having it portable on the Nintendo 3DS. And now finally, at last, we have an official HD version of Xenoblade. It always feels like people are chasing that high of like, if I could just get a current gen looking (laughs) Xenoblade, this would be so great. Chasing the dragon, as it were. I actually, um, I should look up the game, how it looks on the Dolphin, and just compare how it is to Definitive Edition, because I'm a little curious myself. So I have a pet theory about Xenoblade, and I apologize to fan, legit fans of the series, but I think that people like the idea of Xenoblade more than they like the actual game. <laughs> you ain't a bit sorry for that outlook. Uh, so with Xenoblade Chronicles, it has a great... Okay, first of all, it has a great namesake. It goes back to Xenogears, so people are like just automatically going to be more sympathetic toward it, I think. And it has contributions from Mitsuda and Tetsuya Takahashi. And so it has an amazing pedigree. And then you look at static screenshots, and it just looks great in those. With the, the sheer scale, has that almost kind of MMORPG feel going for it in the way that it approaches that. Uh, on the face of it, the battle system's like pretty cool and everything. It's a Nintendo exclusive. It was a much desired import RPG back in the day. But if you look at the actual material that is Xenoblade Chronicles, it's a very grindy game with some pretty basic set uh, side quests. And I don't know, like it feels a little like from another time and place because it it leans so heavily on the trappings of the MMORPG genre from back when people were like, yeah, JRPGs are dying. Uh, They need to Mm. emulate World of Warcraft or whatever. I I just, (laughs) my point is, is that it has this almost outsized reputation that I don't necessarily think it deserves. I don't know. I see. It's been a long time since I played the original Xenoblade uh, Chronicles, but replaying too it's like okay yeah i do still love this game i still love the music the characters like even though rex's design is stupid i still like him pyrus design is stupid but i still like her 
I love Nia. I love Drew Mark, who's the big tiger. Um, I love this. I, I just love the Titans. I love the idea of just like having these these living beings that people live on, and especially in Xenoblade Chronicles too. A lot of those Titans are in distress and are on the verge of dying. And the question is, well, what's going to happen to the people when this Titan dies? Like, the, there's one uh, continent that the temperature is slowly, slowly going up, and people realize they're basically screwed, but there's nothing they can do except just keep on living. And, well, let's just say that's a mood. <laughs> but, so, I haven't played the original Xenoblade Chronicles in a long time, but I am looking forward to getting back to it. So, I can't exactly sit here and argue oh, you know, Kat, you're totally wrong, because for all I know, it didn't age that well, but I'm still looking forward to it. But I feel like you're right in that people feel it's a very special RPG because it came out in a time when JRPGs were scarce, let alone, like, really unique and, and different JRPGs. But it still has all those those tracings that I love from the Xenoblade Chronicles series, those, you know, the, the, those, those weird titans that you that you explore and live on and you know, the, the weird-looking enemies. The the only thing I really don't like about Xenoblade Chronicles is that they keep trying to make Nopons a cute thing, and I hate them. Yeah, I really hate those <laughs> things. I think the Mechons are really cool. That was what really stood out to me when I was replaying Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition was that they clearly stem from Tetsuya Takahashi's appreciation for Mecha because they had this wonderful, like, angular look to them. Uh, the The... The games that I'm thinking of is like Zone of the Enders, where you have, uh, where the mechs have a very geometric shape to them that I think just makes them look really sharp and cool. And they're great, yeah, and they're great they... mysterious enemies for you to be able to fight. Uh, it adds an air of mystery to the game. So I think I like Mechons way better than whatever the heck Xenoblade Chronicles 2 had as an enemy. I can't even remember. It was kind of boring. It had like different people with blades and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. The, the villains in Xenoblade Chronicles by... 2 didn't stand out to me in the same way. Well, they're designed by Tetsu Nomura, so there you go. Oh. One of them was literally just Cecil from Final Fantasy IV with a mask. Like, that was okay. all he And was. I know that you like the protagonist from Xenoblade Chronicles 2, but I don't like the design of the cast. I prefer Shulk and company. I, I like the more grounded look. I Xenoblade Chronicles 2 almost... I can't even describe it. I just do not like that particular style for the characters. That's fair. And I do agree with you in that the, the Mechons are a really... A very threatening enemy. Like, I, when I played the game, I do remember being taken very seriously and almost being a little bit scared of them because they did have such an alien look to them. Like, yes, they are robots, but they have a very almost like otherworldly look to them. Like, I think you mentioned in your preview that you can just see they, they handle humans with like these sharp claws that are like meters long and they just look so threatening and so cold and sterile and they just there's no sense of empathy coming off them. And that's that's quite frightening. It reminds me of the Animatrix's The Second Renaissance, where you see the, the robots coming in and tearing open mechs like a tin can to get the juicy human inside and just pull them out <laughs> uh, in ways that yeah. are like... Uh, they pull them out while they're still buckled in and their their limbs tear apart and they just have the torsos and it's just like, ugh. And in Xenoblade Chronicles, you see the mechon having these pincers and they grab people who are fighting in mechs against them and pull them out and it's just it gives me a similar vibe and it makes them see really terrifying and it helps that when you're actually fighting them your sword will bounce off their armored hide you have to actually topple them to be able to knock them down so that makes them feel that much tougher and also annoying to fight yeah 
They are definitely a little bit annoying until you get Dunban, who ha- who is also able to cut through Mekondas, as I recall. Uh, but yeah, I do remember, at least for the first few hours of uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, before I really had a good idea of how to topple enemies, I was a little bit scared of the idea of confronting Mekondas, because I knew they could destroy me. And I think that's not such a bad thing for a JRPG, because you want to be a little bit scared of your, your foes. This is the power of the Minato. Uh I like that they pull directly from Evangelion in having in flashing back to a, a scene where they're walking through snow and what kind of seems like Antarctica, much the same way that in Evangelion they discover the first angel uh, under the ice. I never thought of that connection, but you're absolutely right because yeah, that's where the whole that's where they found the Minato, right? Yes. Like in some snowy scape, as I like recall, like some kind of ice cave or something to that effect. I've actually been skipping some of the cutscenes because they were kind of boring me. <laughs> <laughs> a cat the monado i just go back to the pro zd sketch where uh titled when you skip all of the cutscenes." <laughs> who the hell are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't care boring 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 just get me to the gameplay that's kind of me with rpgs unless i'm really hooked by the story and that's another reason that i've never kind of thought xenoblade chronicles of the story is all that because the story kind of actually bores me I'm more into the setting than the story. Yeah, yeah. The writing feels really flat. It is a little bit anime. It's not terrible, but it's not the greatest. Uh, uh, yeah, I am more into like what the worlds are about. There are a couple of characters I really like in Ghibli Chronicles too. Like Morag is really awesome. It's totally unfair to compare this to Final Fantasy VII Remake, which is a big budget game that is the gold standard of the writing in the genre at the moment. But it also reminded me of how good writing in jrpgs can be and it really Mm -hmm. that game held my attention in a way that xenoblade chronicles doesn't persona 5 holds my attention in a way that xenoblade chronicles doesn't dragon quest 11 holds my attention in a way that xenoblade chronicles doesn't you see what i'm saying like there are such rich examples of writing within the genre that it feels like a step down when i go to xenoblade chronicles and people have such a high opinion of Zealand Blade Chronicles that I'm just necessarily going to judge it more harshly. That's fair. But, um, yeah, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, the dialogue is brilliant as much as I love those British accents and all that, like, crazy, like, British uh, slang that they use. I just, lo- I just adore it. But <sighs> Final Fantasy VII Remake's writing was on another level. I mean, that's why my husband wanted to watch me play it. Uh, it's actually on the same level as Final Fantasy XIV, which also has incredible writing, but... God, those are definitely not the, the 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 standard that you get in this genre, unfortunately. So I kind of concluded my preview by saying that the nicest thing that I can say for Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition is that it adds it, it's a it's a good RPG that adds mm-hmm. to an already amazing library. Like if you are an RPG fan, you just have to own a Nintendo Switch. That's just all there is to it because there's so many amazing games on that console at this point all in one place and so having xenoblade chronicles definitive edition just adds to that yeah you're absolutely right it's almost like the switch is the snes of its era i will say that i like xenoblade chronicles definitive edition more than xenoblade chronicles 2 mostly because i didn't really jive with the uh the gacha mechanics of drawing the 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 helpers I got used to that. I st- I enjoyed that once I got into it. And I actually remember talking to the creators of Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and asking, why did you do that? And they said they actually wanted to make it kind of a social media thing where people would share their which blades they got on Twitter. And 
as I understand, that actually helped promote the game quite a bit because it sold very well, especially in the West. Well, it helped that everybody was buying a Switch and everybody was looking for something new to play on it. I, when I look at Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, mostly it makes me want to play Dragon Quest XI again. You should be playing Dragon Quest XI again. I am a little disappointed that you, you got stuck kind of in the middle, didn't you? Yeah, I hit a really cool kind of climax moment. And then I felt like the game lost all of it. All that momentum dissipated as it was playing all these side stories. And I was kind of like, I'm just not that interested in these side stories. Get me back to something that's driving the story ahead. It, I yeah. think I already mentioned that I was reading uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norwell. And I like that game. Oh, that game. I like that book a lot. <laughs> but it has such an amazing setting and it does such an incredible job of capturing the feeling of being in 19th century Britain, but it has so many asides dedicated to world building that there are points where I'm like, yeah, yeah, but get to the point to drive the story ahead for heaven's sake. It's like Stephen King on steroids. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was the one thing that they added to the definitive edition that was a little disappointing because I like the side stories, but they're really placed in a bad place. Speaking of side stories, Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition adds an epilogue, which is kind of cool. That's kind of cool, yeah. Like, I, I'm guessing it probably links the, the two games, but uh, I don't really know how. I know that the two games are linked, but I, it was such a convoluted story explanation that it's completely slipped from my mind. Yeah, uh, what, what are the name of the little creatures that follow you around that look a little like rabbits? Oh, the bunnets? No, no. <laughs> like, they're actually characters. I forget what their names are. Oh, the nop the Nopons? Yeah, whatever? like, it has a couple of those characters, and that automatically makes me not want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> they look like, uh, I think was Riki. it Choo Choo from Xenogear? Is that the name? Yeah, they do look a little bit they, like that. They're a little rounder, though. And they... Yeah, like, Ta Takahashi apparently likes those kinds of characters. Yeah, I guess I don't blame them. Just when they open their mouths, they're like, okay, shut up now. So yeah, Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, I mean, there's not a lot else to play on the Nintendo Switch at the moment, unless you're going through your backlog, so, and it is a classic RPG, it's certainly the best looking RPG version of Xenoblade Chronicles by far, there's, I mean, you don't want to play any other version, and I think it's at worth at least trying out uh, to see if you like it. I know that there are a number of people were replying to me on Twitter saying, this is my favorite RPG of all time. And it's like, okay, yeah, like, there you go. You really love it. I'm sure plenty of people are going to pick it up just on the strength of Shulk being in Super Smash Brothers. Yeah, there is that. That is a very, <laughs> Smash Brothers is always like the ultimate commercial. Oh, I mean, yeah, for sure. So Nadia, do you have any additional thoughts on Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition? Oh, heck, I'll be picking it up and giving it a try. I'm looking at my Shulk amiibo right now, actually. It has a lot of uh, quality of life additions, including a casual mode, which I really appreciate, because that game can be pretty hard. Yeah, it can get kind of brutal, especially, like I said, in the beginning when you really don't know what to do about uh, against those Mechonis. And I remember having a really hard time against the first serious boss, like that big brown Mechonis, who's, you know, the fancy seeing you, Monado boy, that one. <laughs> I had a hard time with him. The one with the face can be pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, like this, I think any Mechonis with a face is, will kick your ass if you don't know what you're doing. You can also put it in Japanese so you won't hear, this is the power of the Monado every five seconds. Well, yeah, but I'm going to keep it in English. I mean, come on. All right. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Katie on. She's reviewing Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, and she will have additional thoughts, I'm sure, on the full game. So we'll have a full review and look back on Xenoblade Chronicles. So please look forward to that. In the meantime, let's continue on to the track of the week. 
Okay, Nadia, it is time for the track of the week, the segment in which we revisit a classic piece of music from an RPG and talk about where it came from and put into context around the RPG. And this week, we have a track from Xenoblade Chronicles, since that's what we're talking about, and see if you recognize this song. Nadia, you picked this song uh, over some of the more famous examples like the Gower Plains, and I'm curious what your thinking is in terms of selecting this particular song. Um, yeah, you're right in that the Gower Plains, and you all know our names, uh, which is actually in Smash, uh, are, are much more, I think, well-known and popular, but this is the song from Colony 9, which is Shulk's hometown, and this is what you hear when you hang around the town at night. And it's a very, very calming song. It's actually probably one of my favorite town themes in any RPG ever. Uh, I love that acoustic guitar. One memory that I have is just like kind of exploring the town at night while this is playing. Because it, Colony 9 isn't a, a standard town like you have in the upper level. You're with the areas where people live. But down at the bottom, there's more of a wild area where you can like swim around and look for treasures and stuff like that. So I distinctly remember listening to that song while exploring the more wild areas of the city. And it really stuck with me. And it's just one of those songs where when I listen to an RPG radio and it comes on, it just immediately calms me no matter how pissed off I'm feeling at something. I like the calming guitar strings that begin the song. Yeah, I've always had a weakness for acoustic guitars. Uh, and that's just an example of that right there. It just the way it starts too with that strange kind of whistling sound is nice as well. I I will say this for Xenoblade Chronicles soundtrack, it really slaps. It does. Like I, I thought I remember you saying you didn't like it that much, but I guess now that you've had more time with the game, you you've probably grown with Did it. Did I say that I didn't like its soundtrack? Because I think Xenoblade Chronicles has an amazing soundtrack. I don't know, maybe it was another game, but you were saying how you didn't there was some game, maybe it was Xenoblade Chronicles, you were saying that the music wasn't as good as people were saying, but no, it's it's pretty good. <laughs> Well, you do know, you know me, I hate everything, so it's easy to assume that I just automatically hate the Xenoblade Chronicles soundtrack because I spent the past 20 minutes uh, totally ragging on it. <laughs> no, it's a really good, it's a really nice song. So this song was composed by Yoko Shimomura, who obviously has a long history in the video game industry, composed Street Fighter II. Uh, best known maybe for her work on Kingdom Hearts and cites Dearly Beloved as her favorite song from that particular game. Uh, what do you think of Yoko Shimomura's work, Nadia? I actually associate her most with the Super Mario RPG soundtrack, which, even though it's not my absolute favorite Square RPG on the SNES, it has a soundtrack that is quite close to Chrono Trigger's in my mind. I think that the parade ending theme is on par with Faraway Times by uh, Mitsuda. Uh, I absolutely love 
her work um, and the fact that she was a pioneer in, in, in like with so many series like composing Street Fighter 2 that is not a small achievement <laughs> I mean you think of the songs that have endured for decades and decades like uh, Guile's theme which quote unquote goes with everything Ken's theme Ryu's theme um, she wasn't alone in composing those of course but she had a big hand in it so um, yeah her work is, is legendary for lack of a better term and uh, her work on uh, Xenoblade Chronicles of course is, is just magnificent so she's clearly talented she's still at it she's still doing a lot of arrangements a lot of i think she helped arrange super smash super smash brothers ultimate which a lot of people did uh yeah she um she she's quite amazing when i think of her i do think of diversity in terms of a lot of tunes uh her styles include rock electronica oriental ambient industrial pop symphonic operatic chiptune and more so she clearly has a ton of range in the way that she can compose a lot of these songs she is very much very she has a great range and uh it actually that's one of the reasons like it kind of surprises me to look at her her portfolio and say oh she did this she did this like i'm not saying she doesn't have a distinct style of course i'm just saying that she's so like so uh varied that she can just kind of adapt to anything and that's a really good talent getting back to the colony nine theme at nighttime i wish that more rpgs would use guitars yeah me too there is actually i was going to tell people like if you uh if you want more great acoustic guitars in your rpgs ragnarok online has two of my favorite songs ever uh one is called antique cowboy and the other is called uh, the theme of aldebaran uh, which are both acoustic guitar-based songs. Uh, the Antique Cowboy has a, uh, an electric guitar as well, but yeah, those are. I just like love acoustic guitars probably because my father plays one. He plays like a twelve-string Gibson. Uh, it's actually extremely rare, so I've always just had a weak spot for them. I think that my favorite instrument to have in, a, in an RPG generally is a piano, which is kind of a cliche, Pian- yeah. kind of a cliche instrument to have in your RPGs in general. But I don't know. I think that a really nice just tapping one key can add a little bit to the atmosphere, make me feel more relaxed. Uh, I think that Pokemon Diamond and Pearl had some piano tunes. Uh, that is not something that you really heard in any of the other songs, and I wish that it would bring it back. Uh, I think Kingdom Hearts had some piano as well. So... Uh, the but I don't like epic strings or epic uh, orchestral arrangements necessarily because I think they're a little cliche. They are a little bit overused in RPGs, but you're right in that a good piano can really stand out. Like one of my favorite, if not my absolute favorite, song from Final Fantasy IX was "Rose of May," which is uh, Beatrix's theme. Which is it's simply a piano. That's all it is, and it's just it's just gorgeous. So tell me a little more about the other people who contributed to the Xenoblade Chronicles soundtrack, Nadia. So the other contributors uh, to the Xenoblade Chronicles soundtrack is uh, Ace Plus, which is a trio of musicians that includes uh, Tomari Kudo, Hiroyo Yamanaka, and Kenji Hiramatsu. Uh, They also worked on Xenoblade Chronicles 2 as well, which we've already gone over as an excellent soundtrack. So yeah, they had a a big hand in composing pretty much all like all of the sound in uh, in Xenoblade Chronicles. Uh, I looked up their previous works. I couldn't find too much there beyond Xenoblade Chronicles series. So 
If you know something I don't, by all means, let me know, because, of course, as we can discern from Xenoblade Chronicles, their, their work is quite excellent. And also, Mitsuda contributed one track to this uh, game, that's the ending theme, Beyond the Sky, which, uh, if you listen to the Japanese version of the song, it actually code switches between Japanese and English phrases. Uh, it's a pity that Mitsuda wasn't able to contribute to the entire soundtrack, but it's nice to have at least one song from him. It is, and it kind of preps you for what comes next. And if you're not familiar with Mitsuda, of course, he helped contribute to things like Chrono Trigger and Xenogears and Xenosaga. Like, he has an incredible uh, resume uh, by himself. But uh, any yeah. any final thoughts on the track of the week this week, Nadia? Uh, it's a very nice track, and given how stressed out you probably are because of circumstances, I think it's a good track to have on rotation when you just need some music to, to chill with, to meditate with, study with, whatever you want, whatever. Just take it easy with it. I also think that I like town themes that are a lot more chill and relaxed rather than bouncy and energetic. Bouncy and energetic town themes drive me up the wall. I don't know what it is. I guess because I'm in there and I just don't have stuff to do when I'm in a town. I don't want to get all excited about it. I want to shop and leave. I don't necessarily like piano themes when I'm in a town. I like piano themes when I'm in an overworld more. Uh, yeah, yeah, because they're more melancholy and you kind of, they kind of carry you a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Whereas they start to sound repetitive when I'm in a town. I, I think actually in general, when you're in a town, you should go as subtle as possible. And I think this track does a good job of that. Okay, Nadia, it's time to continue on to letter time. As I already mentioned it's at the time. beginning of this episode, people had a lot of thoughts about the RPGs games that they feel should get a second chance, the ones that didn't do so well. So let's read some thoughts from you guys. The first comment is from Kuchambra, who says, there's an alternate timeline where Bioware kept producing creative RPGs in interesting settings like they did in Jade Empire. Instead of going back to generic space opera, but now without the Star Wars license, and generic high fantasy, but now without the D&D license. A game like Alpha Protocol is a great example of how RPG systems can be applied to narratives and settings outside that narrow niche with interesting results. I wish more studios took that route. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer that BioWare got kind of pigeonholed and went in a specific direction, and I think a lot of that has to do with the failure of Jade Empire. Yeah, it is too bad. And uh, as we record this, aren't they, they, they launched the plans for basically Anthem Reborn. So they'll be working on that for a while. Anthem Reborn, which apparently they had to go back to the drawing board with, which no kidding. good luck with that. And <laughs> also they are working on Dragon Age 4 and uh, by all accounts are doing a remastered version of the Mass Effect trilogy for Nintendo Switch, which cool. Sure. Yeah, I am actually, that would be my excuse to finally play the games. It's on the Switch. Nadia, get off your ass. Nadia, play Mass Effect for heaven's sake. You'd really like it. <laughs> I know I'd like it. I never stuff about Star Control 2. I know I'd like it. It's not just that. I think that you would really dig the characters and the high space opera aspect of it. It's fun. It's a fun series. From, all, from everything I've seen, it does look like a lot of fun. And I'm not, I'm not usually someone who's really huge into space operas. But yeah, like the, I, I know the character is, even though I've never played the game. So it's that kind of game for me. I think the greatest tragedy of this past generation has been the fall, decline and fall of Bioware. It really stinks. It really does. It is very disappointing. Um, who knows? Maybe the, the future will bring something nice. I mean, I think back to 
we were doing our decade in review episode a few episodes back and you think about where bioware was in 2010 where they mm-hmm. had put out mass effect 2 and they were truly at the top of the world one of the most prestigious uh studios out there and they were just wholesale replaced by cd project and like bioware still has a passionate following we saw that when we were at pax west and we had a full house uh, including cosplayers to hear us talk about the original Mass Effect, but that was a good panel. Yeah, yeah it was a very enjoyable panel. But yeah, I, I wish Bioware would come back, and I hope that uh, Dragon Age Four kind of gets them onto that path. We'll see. Okay, Gamer Law says uh, has two games that they would like to see. One is Skies of Arcadia Legends, which, by the way, Skies of Arcadia was one that came out quite a bit. One of the best RPGs of that yeah. console generation. With airship combat that stands the test of time. I agree, but only if Ryoko Kodama actually works on it. Hmm. That's an interesting caveat, but yeah. I I would just worry that Sega would put a game out that would be going to a B or C tier studio and that we would get a game that yeah. wouldn't really live up to the legacy of the original. Don't do it a budget. If you're going to do Skies of Arcadia, do it right. Yeah, I agree. Like... With Sega, like, you never know what you're going to get in terms of stuff sometimes. Like, sometimes you can tell they really, really care, and sometimes they don't care as much as they should. And I think the the whole Panzer Dragoon Saga remake depoggle, like, you know, just highlights where they went wrong in this particular instance. Because yeah, don't farm it out, for God's fa- sake. Don't farm out Panzer frickin' Dragoon to a, a C-tier studio. It's too precious to too many people, and it's too rare. And the other is Infinite Space, a game that was significantly ahead of its time in terms of deep customization, strategic combat, and a complex narrative. Infinite Space desperately needed a better tutorial as the learning curve was steep and exciting and exacting. I remember going to TGS, I think 2008, maybe 2009, and walking into a room with a bunch of one-up people and basically being like, Infinite Space, it's like they made a game for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> finally a game for me i really liked it uh, infinite space was rad because if you're not familiar with it it's a game in which you control a fleet of starships and oh that is you. you're progressing through a a narrative uh you can customize the starships you can uh you can increase their power by putting in different rooms and that kind of thing uh there's a ship to ship combat that's turn-based which is a lot of fun to look at and they did actually a pretty remarkable job of making the ship battles dynamic and interesting looking, even on even given the power of the Nintendo DS. Uh, they had uh, away missions, like people could, in, uh, it was kind of a rock, paper, scissors, uh, boarding party battles, that kind of thing. And then there was a whole dang, fairly intense storyline that uh, it just felt like a game that was way too big for the Nintendo DS. And... I kind of wish that Infinite Space would come back on a platform that could actually support it and done right. Like it, it felt like a piece, a full blown PC game that was crammed down onto the Nintendo DS. Put it on the Switch. There's another shot for you. Yeah, listener. There just aren't enough games like Infinite Space. Just give me that game. That game in particular. Oh, it's great. I'm sorry, I missed it. I didn't play it. It'd be like Mass Effect if the whole game was you flying around on the Normandy and getting into ship battles and that kind of thing. Or it's like Space Battleship Yamato. I don't know. I just... uh, just Not enough games like Infinite Space. Okay, I'm repeating myself now. A friend of the show, John Learned, says, Crimson Shroud for the 3DS. Short, straightforward, and way, way more dark than it seemed on the surface. 
the touchscreen dice rolling mechanic might have to be ditched if it were on modern platforms outside the Switch, but it's a perfect snack RPG. I'm sure you can make a case for a lot of DS 3DS games to get the same treatment, and I'm guessing you'll be doing this during their respective episodes. He also suggests Dragon's Dogma and practically every Vanillaware game. I really love this studio, <laughs> but I can't in good conscience tell people that its games are amazing. I think the recent Odin Sphere remaster is a step in the right direction, and I'd like similar treatment for just about the entire catalog. Grim Grimoire, Muramasa, etc. So, Nadia, you're a big Vanillaware fan. You agree? I agree. I would love to see... Uh, I, I am totally pro-Vanillaware. I'd like to see more of their stuff on modern systems. Oh, we did get that Dragon Crown remake, and that was that was this generation, right? Yeah, so they, they were in the right direction with the Dragon Crown remake uh, and the Elden Sphere uh, revamp as well. But we haven't heard, like, anything from them because they have something new in the works and just haven't heard anything about that, haven't heard anything about, like, maybe porting over, over old projects. It's a bit of a shame because Vanillaware's art stirs up a lot of controversy, but damn if I don't love it. Cavo uh, the Raven, I think that's how you pronounce it. One of my favorite RPGs from that period, which has faded into obscurity, is Eternal Sonata, developed by Tri-Crescendo. The way the game built its story, battle system, visuals, and soundtrack around classical music and Frederick Chopin remains unique to this day. Unfortunately, it did very well. It did not do very well to my knowledge. I guess it's releasing on the Xbox 360 in the same year as Mass Effect did not do the game any favors. It also got kind of middling reviews. A lot of people weren't all the way down with the pacing. They found it kind of a boring game, but it sure was beautiful. Yeah, I remember uh, looking at that game, like YouTube videos, and being like, wow, this looks really, really, really weird. And yes, it was an Xbox 360 game, which did not help its case, because, that's like I said last uh, episode, that's where JRPGs went to die. They come out on the PS3 and... eventually, so I mean... Oh, did yeah. it? Okay. But it was still a very strange game. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about, wasn't it like... Uh, something about like saving uh, the composer who, who was like infected with tuberculosis and yeah it's uh chopin it's a dream world you're going into chopin's uh land of chocolate Ooh, the land of chocolate i appreciate i very very much appreciate how unique that was so i can see why giving it another chance like sure maybe the the, the first game didn't hit that hard didn't land quite as people liked but the concept uh is, is so off the wall that i'm just like hey sure give me more of that going to a diseased person's mind i'm i'm all for that who knows what i'll find <laughs> and ryan says i've given up wishing for an alpha protocol sequel i love that game but i don't see obsidian in 2020 making a game like that and due to poor sales i highly doubt sega would revisit it i can only hope we can get more secret agent rpgs eventually i don't know couldn't you see them pitching an alpha protocol 2 to xbox as an xbox exclusive and then we get something like that with a bigger budget sure i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility no absolutely not anything's possible these days that's why we live in exciting times secret age and rpg is evergreen if you make it like mission impossible or jack ryan or something wasn't like i still haven't played disco elysium but wasn't that kind of like more of a secret agent rpg more of a detective rpg hard-boiled noir detective rpg with in which you role play uh you're interacting with the voices in your head a lot <laughs> With the dames and the legs and stuff, right? I'm I'm looking forward to that coming on the uh, on the Switch. I also loved Residents of Fate, though I never finished it. It certainly had some great characters and a cool, if strange, battle system. I wouldn't mind Triace revisiting that setting, but I'll have to check out the 4K PC version. 
Hey, I'm really glad that Residents of Fate is out on PC so that people can enjoy it. Maybe put uh, Crisis Core on PC. There you go. Yeah. Uh, heck, I'd play it on PC. That'd be perfectly fine with me. I'm, I would consider playing it if it came out, but I'm not hugely in a hurry to revisit Crisis Core. It's fine. I'd like, I'd like to revisit it. It was a fun game. I like the bro dynamic between Zack and Cloud. Okay, thanks to everybody who wrote in. We really appreciate it, and we'll be back next week to talk more about RPGs. I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but maybe we'll do the next episode of the Console RPG Quest. We could always sit on the GBA. Yeah, the uh, GBA is a very fertile ground. Yes, uh, especially since we missed out on that particular console. We should have done that before the GameCube. Whoops. <laughs> Apologies, everyone. Uh, in the meantime, Max the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on social media. I'm on the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And we have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday, so you should subscribe to that. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk more about the genre that we love. But until then, stay safe, stay indoors, stay healthy. And until the next time, happy adventuring.